Welcome to Game Brain, a podcast about board games and our gaming group. I am Trey Alsop, and I am your host for this episode. Joining me today is a musical double act featuring Daedalus. You know them as Alfred, the rules lawyer. How are you, Alfred? Fantastic. It's a blizzard condition out here, so if I suddenly go out, it's because a, a, a snowdrift has eaten me alive. So hopefully not the case. Hopefully not. But hopefully not, but just in case, uh, I believe... Our co-host for today, our co-other host for today, will be able to handle all the duties. Co-host. <laughs> Speaking of our, our, our second act, we haven't figured out who, who's opening and who's who's the headliner, but uh, also joining us today, the drummer of deck building, the percussionist of pick up and deliver, the Agricola of rock and roller, Candice the Omnigamer. Hey, Trey, how's it going? And Alfred. <laughs> it's a lot to that live was, up to there. That was, that was a fantastic uh, intro, but I'm definitely the opener here. <laughs> no way, no way. I'm Thank so happy for- we could finally coexist on an episode, Candace. Me too, Wonderful. me too. And we finally We've got our musical games, acts together. Games together. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's taken a while for us to connect, but I'm glad we yeah. are connected now. Equally. Thanks for joining me here on this uh, Saturday morning. As Alfred has said, there's a blizzard over there. It's 62 here in Los Angeles, so there's um, some angst. <laughs> I'm, I miss LA often, but let's just say that's ratcheted up a few extra degrees as we've dropped a few. Uh, yeah, a few degrees. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is round 15, turn one, and on today's playlist, a review of Asian Railroads, a Russian Railroads expansion that is part of the Ultimate Railroads Big Box. And in our member segment, we are going to explore how our games like music. All right, well, should we just get into it and start talking about uh, this week's... Game Night. Alfred. Yes. Yes. Uh, What's going on with you, game-wise? Yeah. You know, I've been in this holding pattern in this wonderful fashion, and the holding pattern is the the best gift that the stork has ever brought me, which is this this baby boy, Clementine. Um, Loving loving it, but it has made it really hard to reach out to local game nights, much less the kind of current conundrum of our our pandemic. So um, I still have a, a wonderful continuing game with friend of the podcast, Andrew, where we play uh, Santorini as a constant. One game ends, the next one begins. BGA makes it so. Uh, awesome. On top of that, um, on top of that, uh, I also voraciously play Connect Four, which is right. sad, um, but I, I do enjoy the <laughs> Why is it the kind of... Well, uh, it was a game to me that had was full of wonder. I used to play with my sibling as a kid, so it's full of like this kind of oh, like I I, I like the game because it has like this reflection of of my childhood. But by playing it a thousand times on BGA at this point, it, it's changed from being the sibling game to being like this kind of deep analysis of essentially a tight abstract. Um, I do like how you can up the number of of squares, so it doesn't just connect four. It's like connect four on an eight to nine square board or you know like you can kind of change the the formatting which is is significant but um yeah the the elegance of the game is not lost on me but i I do find myself kind of maybe sometimes playing absent-mindedly which isn't exactly why i signed up to game in the first place let's say right Mm. and finally and this is the kind of game that's sweeping the nation i play wordle i'll admit it i play that game yeah i don't know if any of you haven't played wordle out there it's like mastermind for words 
Mm-hmm. I still know with... nothing about it, so please share. Yeah, I so see you, it on Twitter everywhere, though. <laughs> it's it's exactly. It's just you you input a five letter word, uh, and it ga- basically tells you what is a correct letter in the right position, a correct letter letter in the wrong position, or incorrect letter. Oh. That's that's the game in a nutshell, and you have six guesses to get there. Um, not not too difficult. I think it was invented by somebody in the UK because sometimes the words lean a little bit more towards that direction. They're definitely, you know, you you see it trending on Twitter. You see it like kind of picking up some of the zeitgeist. I think, you know, articles about it in the New York Times or some such. Um, It's a small game, but it's the main thing, of course, and this is something that we all can learn maybe a lesson from, from our game designs, is that you can share it really easily. You can share the results of your game. You can immediately be like, oh, I've... I did it in two guesses. I did it in six guesses. Look at me. Woe is me. And there's something about that flex or that kind of like offering <laughs> that does make it a little bit inviting to kind of get involved yourself and to kind of puzzle it out. Oh. Well, let me let me ask you, uh, Alfred. Like, my understanding is like you get one word a day. Yeah. Now, yeah, can it, you pay to get more? Is that no, where they monetize it? No. There's no monetization. It is a very it's it's such a breath of fresh air. It's just a free free game. And. And are, is everybody getting the same word or is yes. everybody getting a different, everybody's getting the same word. So when and you spoilers speak, are, when my, ooh, when my yeah. boo, bad boo spoilers, but when I, when my Facebook feed is flooded with Wordle results, yeah, I should be looking at that and, and seeing how different people approached the same puzzle mm-hmm. to get to this, to the same thing. Okay. And so that's, that's, that's kind of a cooperative communal experience then. Potentially. I mean, depending yeah. on your play, you know, and the other thing that's kind of funny too, that you see people it's just uh, emoji squares that get posted when you share your results. Um, so you could conceivably just write in your, like write in the words, write in the emojis and, and flex that you got it in one guess. You know, it could be, it, it, it's totally such a low, like a, a low bar of entry and such a easy game in terms of its coding. And it's just, it's just fun and pure kind of in our kind of way that we appreciate games, right? It isn't like some sort of paywall, some sort of kind of uh, system by which, yeah, you kind of get hints or clues like some of these other word games. It's just, just there, and you know, it kind of banishes this idea of of trying to um, really care about it, right? It's just like a nice distraction that is it's a brief thing. So, is it an app or is it just a website you go to? It's a website. How do it's I get addicted to it? <laughs> Are you sure you want to? No, I don't know. I do love Mastermind though. That was like a childhood favorite of mine. You, you might want to just give us a try. I mean, I think anyone out there that that likes a little bit of, of wordplay could really benefit. So maybe this is a good one for you. But equally, uh, it might just be as fun just to watch your friends, you know, how they do or watch the acquaintances um, toil around and have their good days and bad days. Because it really all is based on like you have some random input in the beginning and it gives you, you know, you're either really close from the start or you're really far. And it, it can be uh, quite frustrating when, especially when there's double letters or some of these tricky bits. So. Candice, what have you been playing? I've been playing uh, PAX Viking, uh, which was, it's a new release from Ion Games that came out last year. Uh, I think it like shipped to backers last year. And I have a review copy right now that I'll be writing a BGG article for okay. at some point in the next couple of weeks. So I've been playing it a bit and uh, I like it so far. I like it. It's, it's kind of, um, you know, coined as a, entry-level PAX game, and I think 
you know, when I, I've played PAX Renaissance, I've played PAX Perforiana, I've played PAX Pamir, I've played PAX Transhumanity. So I really like the PAX games. This one is definitely a little bit different, um, but it still is kind of driven by a market of cards. Um, there's a whole thing where we are Jarls kind of expanding um, our, our, our territory. And the, the cool thing is each game you play with like four different victory conditions and the game will end once someone achieves one of those when an event card is played. So there's a whole like, you know, paxy kind of timing to when you can potentially score. And uh, I, the last game I played, I actually won, which was really exciting because it was, I, I had a, a rather sneaky victory um, because everybody else was kind of focused on other players and, you know, they weren't seeing, and then I was just like, and I actually didn't think I had much going for any of the victory conditions, but all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm like, I could do this and just claim that. And I had the event card in my hand to trigger it. And it came around to me, and it was great. It was great. So um, I'm looking forward to playing that more because um, it comes with a ton of cards. Right. And each time I've played it, I've played it with new players, so we're playing with kind of like the recommended four-player starting deck of cards. Um, but there are just so many that, you know, these, these saga cards that you can kind of uh, throw into the game and change up the experience. Um, so, yeah, so that's Pax Viking. And then um, I've also become addicted to Arkham Horror, the card game. Um, the LCG, right? The LCG, yeah. They just put out a new revised core set um, that kind of flew onto my radar. I picked it up. Uh, my family was visiting. And uh, my Matt and I played it with my nephew. And we just got hooked on it where... We were like, every day we're like, all right, it's Arkham time, you know, like, let's, <laughs> let's play the next scenario. Um, so I'm really loving how this is one of those games that I didn't think I'd be into the theme or anything, but this story is super cool, even in just that core set. And it's really challenging. And I, I love the hand management and everything. Uh, so I'm, I'm completely hooked. I've already bought a bunch of standalone scenario packs and uh, the latest like campaign, The Edge of the Earth, I think it's called. So I'm just, yeah, that's going to be on the regular rotation for a while at this point for me. How about you, I've Jay? I've heard what such you good things about that game from so many people. Like I think I have the core set, probably not the revised core set, and I still haven't played it. And I don't know like what, what has been holding me back. And maybe it's like, I don't know, because it, A, it's cooperative, right? Like, yes. that's still something that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. So can you, like, fail scenarios in the game and then oh, you yes. replay them? Well, like you, you, you can replay them, but, like, the way the story unfolds is, like, you know, when you get to the end of a scenario, um, you kind of, you're, you'll, you'll be set up for the next scenario, whether you won or lost or how you won or lost. Um, oh, so it'll you tell you, on. like, you just, you just move on. But okay. there was one. There was one scenario, the second scenario, where we realized when we were kind of going through the end of the scenario steps, um, something wasn't really adding up, and then we realized we made a big mistake. Like our <laughs> goal was to to find a bunch of unique cultists, and it turns out we had two. So we were like, "All right, we're doing okay." But they, what we picked, what we um, killed, were not even considered unique 
cultist. So we really got zero. So we were like, let's just run this again before we move to the third one. Um, gotcha. So you you can do that. And actually now Matt and I are going back and playing two players with different investigators because you have like these different investigators characters that have different skills and strengths. And I think it's like just really cool how, you know, if you are playing multiplayer, how you can kind of, you know, like Matt's character, Roland is like really good at fighting and, you know, has some guns in his deck that can like really do some damage to monsters. Whereas I'm playing Daisy now. And she's this librarian and she's really good at like investigating locations for clues, which we also need to do. So you're just like managing all this really cool stuff. Yeah. Ugh, I and these characters more, are but... persistent though, right? Like you're carrying over the characters. Yes. They're not exactly yeah. leveling up, but the, but the growth is like in your deck. In, yes. In, in your the... deck is, your deck is leveling up because at the end of each scenario, hopefully <laughs> like you'll get some experience points, which you can use to buy cards and swap out and you're generally like your deck is uh usually a 30 card deck plus you have a couple other cards like each investigator has a weakness card and then you also have a random weakness which ooh, that's not fun when you draw those <laughs> but like thematically it's it's great and like you're managing you know you can take physical damage or mental damage which is horror and if either of those stats, like, you know, you get, you take too much in either direction, they could kill your character. Um, but even still, like, there are things that happen at the scenario when you're killed, you know. I'm not going to spoil anything, but. <laughs> but I, you just did. I, <laughs> but I definitely, like, recommend if you haven't checked it out. Um, I'm also, like, I'm, I want to try it solo. I, I think it's going to be more interesting, probably, like, two players, three players. Four players might drag a bit, um, but would still be really fun because I like the whole discussing, like, how are we going to do this? Like, we have this scenario, we have, we have to deal with this, but we also have to try to do this before this happens. So that, like, the dialogue of kind of, like, working together is, yeah, it's super interesting. And, it's, again, it's very challenging. <laughs> but so good some story. People, some like, people I would think always it's be a little suspicious. brutal. Oh, Yeah. I would be yeah. suspicious that the story wasn't good. So I'm I'm happy to hear that like you're enjoying the the narrative. Yes. Yes. I am really enjoying the narrative. And I love that like the decisions that we make in one scenario, how it <laughs> impacts the future scenarios. And you know, so yeah, it's super cool. Great. Uh for myself, this has been like the week of uh async for me in addition to our our preparation for this podcast playing uh Asian Railroads uh I think I'm starting my fourth game of Agricola this this week uh Matt I'm just happy to let everyone know that Matt is continuing his quest to improve at uh Agricola and um he's making some progress uh Paul is making no progress whatsoever <laughs> Uva Rosenberg continues <laughs> To completely uh, befuddle Paul in in playing uh, the game, and we've been we've been playing with a friend of the pod, uh, David Gillison, who's who's proven to be quite a good player at that game. We're still kind of just playing with the A and B decks uh, before moving on to the C and D. Um, but I, I feel like um, now that Agricola is on board game arena. Like this game is suddenly like much more accessible for multiple plays and for like a bigger part of the population than like before you had to go to like playagricola.com, which was not especially friendly UI wise to 
more casual um, players, but it's on board game arena now. And I can see like I've been um, stalking Lumen online. Lumen, if, if people remember, was our, is our uh, Agricola expert and uh, Settlers of Catan <laughs> expert that we brought in earlier on the podcast to talk about Settlers and Agricola strategy. And uh, so I occasionally am ghosting Lumen on <laughs> BGA and rewatching some of the games that Lumen's been playing. I think he's doing tutoring where he, he, he mm. can tutor people at Agricola. But one of the ways to get better is just to watch people. And you can see people's rankings. And I guess tracking, tracking their rankings on BGA. And so, you know, cool. go rewatch a game or drop in on one of the games that these high-skilled players are playing. And there's, I think that there's a lot to learn if you've got the, the, the base knowledge there. It's such a high-skill cap game. <laughs> Um, the people that are good at it are really good at it in ways that I think when you're just merely pretty good at it as, as I am, it's tough to understand why the good players are so good <laughs> other than at the end of the game, they've got 52 points, <laughs> you know, which is huge, which is absolutely huge in Agricola anyway. All right. Are we ready to get to the news? Okay, in the in the news, uh, this is you know stuff that that caught my particular interest. Uh, the Kickstarter uh, news that most interested me this week is they have announced a Lagranja Deluxe Master Set. Uh, link will be in the show notes, but if you go to Kickstarter and just type in Lagranja, it'll be there. Uh, Lagranja, have, have either of you played Lagranja before? I, I'm seeing some nods. I reviewed it, I think, on one of my episodes. Oh, okay. Lagranja, but yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I, I didn't play it to the extent by which I would feel like I was any good at it, but man, it's fun. Yeah. It's, I, it's another I've worker it placement kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Elder, actually. <laughs> I think on Board Game Arena. It's on Board Game Arena, yeah. It is. Okay. Yeah. It's, I liked it, it a lot. This is it's 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 one it's definitely I would say, like do I have it as a top 20? It I think it kind of belongs around like one of my top 20-ish cool. games. It's it's definitely in my in my wheelhouse. It's one of these games that uses cards in multiple ways in a way that I think that's really creative. But in any case, they're doing a new addition. Uh, and it's not just that they've updated uh, the artwork. They've also added new modules. And the new modules here, it's not like there's a couple. It's more like there's seven or ten. I, I lost track counting them. But from a number of designers, like Stefan Feld uh, has, has done, I think, a module or two. Uh, there's some other designers. There's like ten different modules new art there's a new solo mode on automa style solo mode but from david turksey um and john albertson um there's new art and it's also just i think they were showing for example the the player mats that we played with before are now larger like if that was an issue Ooh. before where some aspects of the game were maybe a little bit hard small and hard to handle this version is bigger and better Sounds I love this so idea awesome. of like the 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 Marvel style team up, the MCU for Lagranja <laughs> to have this Avengers esque, all the good designers, all the solo mode stuff come together for a game that's deserving, right? We, I mean, I, I really love that game, and I I do think maybe there's a certain point where a certain strategies show up because of cards, and maybe ten extra modules will defeat any possibility of that. Now it's infinite. 
I would like, yeah, I would, I would like more people in our group to play it because I do feel like this game's heavy enough that I don't feel completely comfortable just breaking this game out with anybody at game night, right? It's, because it's a it's a high skill game, and so I would I'd rather like that we have a roster of people who've played the game three or four times, and so that because I, I think that's where the game's really gonna sing a little bit like Agricola too, right? You know, where you need to have some reps to really start engaging with some of the deeper strategies and options in the game. Well, and to be quite frank too, if you let somebody get away with certain strategies and options, you are just going to be bowled over. There's synergies and combos in that game specifically that if you're not going for, you know, uh, the pig farmer or whatever else, you're, you're all your gooses will be cooked collectively. So if you're not looking for it, it may, it may be tough. So I'm really looking forward to Matt or Ben uh, purchasing this Kickstarter <laughs> for, for the group. Okay. Yeah, and- I still have, uh, I was going to say, I still have my Rococo Deluxe uh, from Eagle Griffin that I haven't played yet. And I've been wanting Rococo for so long, got the Deluxe. So I, I'm like, I have to stop buying into these <laughs> unless it's like, a for you know forever game for me but it looks really cool and i look forward to playing someone's copy yeah i think i have rococo the base game and still have never played it and, and it, it it makes me sad which is why like oh, i almost signed up for this game. One. okay well yeah, yes yes i that, will Trey. let's put it on the calendar <laughs> i think that's like number seven on the games that we say we we need to play to, together <laughs> uh candace <laughs> All right, so I, I'm, I'm actually kind of like stealing a bit of news um, from you here, Candice, because I think you covered this on, on BGG, the Sovereign of Discord expansion for Fire in the Lake. You want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, GMT just announced there's a new expansion for Fire in the Lake, which is kind of a uh, prequel. Um, you know, it covers kind of the beginning of the Vietnam War. Um, and I'm really excited about it. It's it, This is one of those strange things where... I have I have yet to play Fire in the Lake, <laughs> but but I love I love the Coin Series game so much, and I just I love Mark Herman and Volko, and you know I have some expectations going in, and just based on like a like I feel like Fire in the Lake is one of the most popular coin games. Um, Why don't so you explain coin it. games for people real quick for people that don't oh, know they, what's a coin game? Yeah, so it's in it's. Each coin game kind of focuses on some uh, counterinsurgency um, situation in different uh, different parts of the world, and um, it's the gameplay is you know you have four asymmetric factions like this. This is the game series that influenced Root. If you if you know probably more people are familiar with Root, um, but you have four asymmetric factions where you have completely different victory conditions. Uh, they're all historically based. Well, I shouldn't say all because now Red Dust Rebellion is coming out, which is the first sci-fi okay. uh, coin game in the future. But um, it still has like four asymmetric factions that are competing. There's a lot of um, area control, but um, there's it's also driven by a really, coin games are driven by a really cool uh, eligibility system where you have like an event deck of cards and you can see hey, here's the current event um, that somebody can take. But you also usually, for most of them, see what the future one is. And, you know, when one person would, depending on what, whoever has the eligibility to take the turn, the initiative, whatever they do, the next person who has kind of like priority order can decide 
if they're going to do the next thing that they are allowed to do based on what the first player did. So it just got this really, really super cool system. And, um, you know, as, as it is, this series has been evolving. Um, they just keep throwing in like, you know, number one, they cover lots of a variety of different historical settings, but then they also are changing up the mechanisms. Like, you know, there are, a couple three-player coin games now. There's a two-player coin game, and the the eligibility slash initiative system works kind of like differently in all of them. Um, but yeah, it's it's just really awesome, and I'm a big fan of all the games. I have all of the ones that are out right now on my shelf, and I've played about half of them. So I'm going to just keep going through them. I love learning them. I love playing them, but they are hard to get to the table. Um, because so these, these are games that are like exclusive to GMT. Like this yes, is a GMT yeah. thing. Yeah, this is a GMT st- series this, of games. Is this a P500? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a P500 and like GMT's P500 is a, a pre-order system. So, uh, which is really cool because they basically announced like, Hey, this game or this expansion is going on our P500 and people can then go and kind of pre-order it. And you, I don't, you don't even need to like pay up front, but you're expressing interest in it. And once they hit 500, that's when they say, okay, let's get production rolling on this, you know? Um, and that's how they can gauge like what makes sense to actually print. Maybe this is a nice precursor to something we'll eventually talk about later in this episode, but like, uh, what a nice alternative to Kickstarter. Let's just say what a nice. Yes, <laughs> yes, totally. And it, 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 it really like works great, you know? Um, people who are fans of GMT and GMT's games are like all into it. Like, I think there are some people who even just like auto like sign up for every P500 that they do. Um, but yeah, it, it gives them a way to say, Hey, we have this game that we're putting up and like, are people interested? Are people going to buy this? And yeah, it's, it's a great alternative to Kickstarter. And it's not just new games either. Like they're, they're this is how they do reprints, if if yep. I'm correct, right? So like correct. they always know. They're never guessing about interest. They always have this right. kind of 500 threshold. And I and, it's, and I think it's also it's not the case that like when they hit their P500, they print 500. I think it's more like this is enough to justify a print run of a thousand or something right. like that. Right. And then so the the game will become available for retailers again at that point. I think. Again, and and uh, Alfred, great point about like, this is an alternative to some of the other distribution that's out there, and it also like it goes directly to the publisher, which I kind of like. You know, like right. I, you know the the less middlemen and the more money that's going directly to the publishers and authors, that seems like a good thing. I think maybe not great for the brick and mortar store, but um, well. But at the same time, though, if it's gauging interest and it's going to be reprinted and going to brick and mortar, then you know people out there will express interest and talk amongst each other. And, you know, the whole thing that like building excitement, we can, I, I would, I know Candace and myself can speak as musicians to this idea of like getting fervent amongst your fans to be there for the release day, to be there for the, <laughs> the opening few bars of the song. It, it makes all the difference. Um, Yes. And this this is really cool that, you know, Kickstarter has its own kind of communities. And I know there's ways to gamify that system so you can you can be up on the ranks and you can kind of, you know, you basically have a, a low ask to pop and then you, well, we can talk about this later, but yeah, right. it's like okay, you, sure. people game game that system and maybe P500 is a truer way of expressing interest. It seems rad. 
Right. I think what are you you're you're talking about the um like setting the bar artificially low in a Kickstarter goal. So it's like we exceeded our goal 20 times. Right. You know, and you have all of these expand, you know, um what what do you what do you call the things you when you trigger them when you get to a certain point, you have the uh, unlocks Unlock, or uh, Yeah. Right, but it's it's or, like it's an yeah. artificial marketing program, and it works. Mm-hmm. I guess twenty times what we asked for. It's like you always knew surprise, you needed surprise. half a million dollars to really make this thing happen. Yeah. Um, all right, let's let's switch to uh, Board Game Arena. Um, just a lot of new titles on Board Game Arena. If people haven't, or like me, have not been paying attention, I, uh, like one of my cute favorites, Cult Express, is now on uh, Board Game Arena. And well, well, the thing that caught my interest about uh, Cult Express is that they have a tutorial available. And so I'm, I'm mostly mentioning this because I think this is really interesting what Board Game Arena is doing, which they're allowing people or creating the architecture for people to build tutorials for games. And so anything that is allowing people to get up to speed on games quicker and make games more accessible, this seems like a really good idea of, of, of having a tutorial system that can be built on top of the, the games at, at Board Game Arena. So we also have, in addition to Colt Express, I'm just noticing Tapestry's now there, Art Deco's now there, Gaia Project is there. I've got an ace, very slow async of Gaia Project going on that one. <laughs> Thank you, Ben, starting a game before you went on your world tour with your podcast and uh, rails, Railways of of the World. Lots, lots of good reasons to be on BGA uh, these days. All right, and then one final thing, um, GameFound is kind of announced that they are trying to be an alternative to Kickstarter. Um, and I think their I think their goal is to kind of like do a you know 25% of Kickstarter's board game business in the next year. They already have like a list of some major titles and hits that they have launched. And like one of the advantages of GameFound, and I'm not up to completely up to date on this, but like Kickstarter has announced that they're kind of moving towards blockchain as a, I don't, I don't completely understand what that's going to mean as far as launching, but, but GameFound seems like here's here's an alternative that's not going to engage in, in in blockchain. Alfred, did you have some thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think smart contracts make a lot of sense for the idea that you will be buying into a product and you will be getting a deliverable, and so this idea that you have a contract that is somewhat, it, it, it exists in a format where you can kind of guarantee the the, the delivery of that. You know, I know a lot of Kickstarters are kind of they 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 pop and then you don't ever get anything. And there's a lot of reasons behind that in terms of the global supply chain. But this idea that you know you 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 were guaranteed something, and if somebody doesn't do right by their contract, there's some 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 recourse. So you can kind of make sense on paper. But then when you dive a little deeper, I mean, blockchain is 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 self-facing as much as Web three again, like in some ideal cloud situation, means something to someone. It's just another version of what we already have experienced on so many levels of like, for lack of a better term, pyramid schemes or Ponzi schemes mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of strange buy-ins that that don't necessarily do right for our space. I don't want to get into what all the, you know, the coin right. stuff or what people may be doing in their financial free time. But in terms of just like the, current, the currency stuff, not the yeah, coin, not, not the coin, GMT not GMT coin, coin thing, the <laughs> cryptocurrency stuff. The crypto cryptocurrency stuff. stuff. And, and, you know, or NFTs or whatever financial, you know, st- I mean, so like, at the end of the day, we, we want cardboard to be on a table. Right. And, and we want to um, better kind of 
have our hobby grow and be accessible to people. And you kind of get this idea that Kickstarter is playing both sides of it. They, a huge percentage of what Kickstarter does is board games and games. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the idea that they are they are going to now go also into a, a basically a currency style system is scary a bit. It's like right. they're trying to get they're trying to eat both sides of it potentially. And it's kind of nice when where we can have and you know and also this is not even to speak on some of the p- potential ecological disasters that the kind of the the what blockchain has potentially in terms of you know smart contracts use up an enormous amount of energy and there's lots of arguments for ways that that can be worked around but is kickstarter the place to figure all that out are they are they the ones to be geniuses and to make it so that there's no big electrical sink and everything's deliverable and everybody does right well maybe but the the real truth is maybe there should be sites that don't (laughs) don't go all in and uh, push their chips to the middle and give us something that is just what we're looking for which is some games that we want to know more about and and be part of their success story, right? So, my sister was encouraging me a, a couple of months ago to like telling me that I should do a creator NFT or something like that, and it didn't mean anything really to me then. And that you know, the little bit of stuff that I've looked into, I'm just speaking for myself here. I want no part of crypto. I want no part <laughs> of of NFTs. But I could see how it might appeal to artists, you know. Um, I can, I can speak to that briefly. I sure. sold one, I sold one NFT on foundation. This was really early on. I'm not even like, you know, like approved or whatever. Like I was able to circumvent a lot of the strangeness of having a digital, um, wallet and, and things that can be hacked and all that stuff. But I, yeah, I sold one thing and it left such a weird taste in my mouth because one person out there can listen to this thing I made part of, um, one person out there can enjoy it. And it's not even about that. They're, they're able to resell it. And they're they're buying into some idea of 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 kind of my reputation, and so they're buying and selling that more than the art itself, which is a little bit disturbing to me. Like I want the art to be the offering; I don't want it to be the way that it can be monetized at some later date. Like you know, mm. it's fine if people that's their goal. It's just not mine. And then on top of it, uh, at the same time, people were like, this was at a point where you had to be kind of invited to be on Foundation as a as a, as a site one of many of these sites, OpenSea, there's other places where you can kind of buy and sell. And people were acting like me on Discord. Like they just made made versions of me on Discord to kind of buy and sell access to foundation. So it was like, oh, this is, it, it was such a meta, like Whoa. meta gaming, the situation that kind of gave me such a bad taste in my mouth that, you know, people were being led astray. And, and so again, like the other thing that's bad about NFTs, as I quickly discovered, is anybody could take any of your music and just sell it on, as an NFT if, because of course you're not selling the music or the art, you're selling the idea yeah. of the packaging. And you have no recourse, thing. right? There's, there's nothing to it. Mm. I mean, it's just, and yeah. so that happened a little bit too, where somebody took a song and like just bound it up and doesn't, you know, again, they're not selling you, but they're selling some, you know, like just like any kind of copyright. It's already murky anyways, but we don't have to get into it too much, but <laughs> that's, a, that's a different podcast maybe. Wow. Yeah, different time, but well, I, I'm I will sorry, say- I'm sorry that happened. It's, it, it's, right. it's, it doesn't seem to be this safe space where everything's guaranteed, but as as was kind of the promise of well, smart oh, contracts are, are patently dumb. That's what, what I've discovered. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just forget for me. I hope to be proven wrong at some future date. Right? Smarter, smarter, smarter. All right. Fair enough. Well, why don't we let's let's actually get into um, our our review here. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about Asian railroads, and I kind of want to, it's going to be a little different than a normal review in that um, 
So we're talking about Asian railroads, which is an expansion to Russian railroads and is part of the ultimate railroads box. This review is not of the entire ultimate railroads box. Inside that box, there will also be uh, some other expansions and other modules. And like, we haven't played the coal expansion. German's not in there, but like, there's, you, you get a lot with the, Alfred, do you want to talk about this? Of, of what really, Just agreeing vigorously. You got okay. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> But we are just we are just reviewing specifically the Asian railroads uh, expansion here for for Russian railroads. So um, this is a game for one to four players on BGG. It has a, a playing time of like ninety to one hundred and twenty minutes, a weight of three point two six, which seems low to me for what the game is. Uh, the designer is Helmut Oli and Leonard Lani Orgler. Artists are Martin Hoffman and Klaus Stefan. Um, published by Hansem Gluck, and in the United States, it'll be distributed by Z-Man Games. Um, Russian Railroads. Alfred, you did a review. I think we did. Did we do a review of this? Yeah, or? I, I, I know was, you were. I I'm a big fan of Russian Railroads, and I definitely was was playing it a lot, and was happy to bring it to the to the podcast at the time, even though it felt a little out of time, just by the fact that it was brought back to BGA, gave it a lot of new life. How many how many plays would you say you have of of Russian railroads? Five hundred. Oh my! Oh, okay. over five hundred. Oh I think yeah. If you look at the look at my stats, it's somewhere up there. And then wow. I had a lot more in physical copies too. All right, we thought I mean, Elder, Elder was the the real repeat gamer, but I, Alfred, I think you've you have a new title now. The new the, the new gamer the new champion. <laughs> uh, so I was trying to get serious. I was trying to compete with it. I was I was trying to do you know do the tournament stuff and it it's interesting that game proved to be worthy worthy of it worthy of deeper study i certainly got a lot out of it but i i never did terribly well i you know got second or third in a few in one or two tournaments and then kind of petered off but that's one of the great things about bga is like you actually are playing with the rest of the world yeah so you know if you're if you're doing well in these international tournaments at all i think that that's in incredibly um impressive so let's let's i'm going to do kind of just a quick summary of what russian railroads is before we kind of jump into how asian railroads is a different expansion so russian railroads is a kind of hardcore worker placement game it has a lot of kind of agricola dna i think in that you have a central worker placement board that we're all competing on with our workers numbers of workers more workers in fact than agricola has you start out with six or so and then that can grow in the game and then you have your own kind of like agricola instead of your farm you have your own personal player board which is going to have a number of rail tracks that you are going to expand out on so worker placement and kind of the core thing in the game is you are placing your workers and then advancing your rails on one of four tracks you have the three different rail tracks that are on your personal board and then you have an industry track which is a, a place where you can kind of like build factories and move another token along this track and trigger those factories when you kind of cross over them this is core russian go ahead alfred I was just going to add that you have a shared uh, placement of, of workers and then you have your personal yes. board where things change. Russian railroads, that factory track on your board, everything's personal. Mm -hmm. This is key. That's right. 
And it uses this kind of rail system where you start out and you can only build the simple wooden rails and they don't even give you any points. But, you know, if you, um, it's a as you build your, your wooden tracks, that opens up the green tracks. And then you can start building green tracks and those start to give you points. And then once you've expanded out from your green tracks, then you can build orange tracks and then expand those out and you can build silver tracks and then ultimately gold tracks, which can score you 10 points, you know, every Woo! single every single round. But you have to kind of like keep pushing these different rails down the individual tracks in order to make room for the more higher scoring tracks. And so um, in addition to kind of like always just pushing these rails, the, the three rail lines themselves are asymmetrical. And as you, and they're also almost like contract spots, whereas when you can, when you can get to certain places where I've advanced my green to spot five, and I have a train that's on that line that can get you to that spot, it's going to unlock certain things. So this game is filled with all kinds of like increasingly diff difficult unlocks that will give you more resources and more actions. And part of your game is sequencing your actions so that you can trigger these unlocks that are going to trigger more unlocks. And so you have the potential and like the, the big kind of like fun, great moment in these games is where you have a super move where one action chains into another action, which chains into a, another action. And you might even, you know, this might end up generating at least the way it's tracked on BGA, you know, 12, 15, 21 distinct little things that happened on your single turn. Um, and that can be very pleasurable. It also can, can be kind of hard to track. So I'm glad BGA does it. But like when another player does one of these super moves and then they click the end of their turn and you're, you're watching the screen, it kind of goes... <laughs> I mean, it's oh, almost like a, a train going off, but you're just like, wait, what just happened? What, what, what did Alfred do? There's, you know, suddenly this huge thing happens and I'm like, I'm scrolling down on the, on the game log, trying to figure out what just happened. Well, can and, I add to that though? Yeah. There's, there's no hidden information, right? Uh, generally speaking, you know exactly what's going to happen, what's potentially there. I mean, there, there's only the tiniest bit of hidden details in terms of some of the end game scoring, but in terms of what you can, what you see on your board, like you know exactly what you can do. And of course, the the aggravating thing is you can't always get there. The thing that's variable, if I may add, uh, what you're what, to what you're saying, Trey, is that there is a variable setup that happens with conductors. So this is something from the original <laughs> Russian Railroad's DNA that has continued forward, where the way by which the procession of these these conductors gets either put out or which ones are available in a particular game can vastly change your strategy. But again, you know exactly what's coming. There's no hidden conductor information. So differing from a lot of other games where you don't know exactly when in Agricola certain things are going to happen. In this, you have perfect information. You know that conductor is coming. You know you probably mm -hmm. won't be able to get it because other people are vying for it. But this idea of having... That information ready at hand is interesting from a strategic level, and especially as we go forward into Asian rails, how it. Is yeah, that's some of the richness of the variable setup. Is that you know you have that initial setup of the game, and you you do need to like take a moment and and be like, oh wow, this game's gonna be like that. Like for example, our last game, we looked at the conductors slash engineers, whatever you want to call them. And we saw that there were two different, or at least this was my reaction, there were two different engineers that were going to give industry track boosts. And so this, at this point. Fact, yeah, right. And so I was like, okay, this game is, unlike the previous game we had played, which had had no boost to industry, 
at all. This meant that going the industry way, there was going to be more means for you to really flog the industry track in the game. But I will say I you think- didn't end up... Oh, sorry, please. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, and I think that was like my rookie move at both of the games that we played is that I don't like Trey gave me a great teach and like gave me some strategy tips about like go for those engineers you know turn order is really super important but I don't think I you know I don't know if it's because I'm playing in BGA or what but I wasn't necessarily like oh let me see these conductors and like build it formulating some kind of strategy and uh, I think I also, just so everyone knows, was playing with two sharks here. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred and Trey are incredibly good at this game. <laughs> um, I uh, I learned a lot, though. I learned, and I was trying to follow, just like you're saying, Trey, to keep up with what people are doing. I'm like, how are they generating this many points? You know, so my whole my whole personal goal was between our two games was to just do better you know keep improving (laughs) because yeah and every every time i would think that um and i really love that about bga where you can see the stats like oh i'm generating 30 points on this this one track and you know i could see what trey and alfred are generating on that same track but just when i thought i was doing something cool and boosting (laughs) my point generation (laughs) i would like scroll down and see they had like tripled me (laughs) And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to catch up. But I still really love the game. And like, I love the uh, the puzzle aspect of it. And the, the worker placement is just, oh, it's, it's really rich. I, I felt so many times, and you guys, you guys, you folks had no idea. I was kind of screaming at the computer. I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I'm literally like, okay, I'm going to do this. Then on my next turn, I'm going to that space. Like, I knew it. And then it was like, nope, somebody else went there. <laughs> so it has like really, really good uh, worker placement tension to it too. Um, and I'm kind of coming at this from, I played Russian Railroads once about two years ago. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I walked away loving it, but I'm definitely not as experienced with managing all of these rails and everything, but I really enjoyed it and I love all the combos and I love all the potential and it's it's the kind of game that makes me want to keep playing it so I can keep figuring out how to get better at it. I'm so happy that you had that experience. If I may, uh, this game, one of the things it doesn't do very well, both Russian Railroads and Asian Railroads, is that if you're behind, you're, there's no catch-up. There's no real... Yeah, there's no. some there's some divergent strategies you could kind of like, okay, everyone's piling in this one thing, I can go into this other thing. But if, you, if you're not in that... If the slew of things, if you're just like missing out on a couple times, if you turn order, if you're third, and you're consistently oh. third, and you're, you're missing the chance, yeah, it's... it's brutal, it's, brutal. Well, <laughs> But it's cool to see your board evolve. It's cool to see the tracks happen and stuff, but you just may not win. But yeah, you're, you're, you're you know, you, you get your. It has that agricola thing for me where like, even if you're not winning, you're doing your own thing on your board and that can, and that can be pleasurable. If you, if you haven't played this game before, let, let me, um, you know, on a, on a simple level, here's what you're doing when you play this game. It's worker placement. So on your turn, you're placing workers. And so unlike, um, you know, Agricola, where you place a single family member every time. This is more like Hallertau, where some actions could require m- multiple workers when you do it. 
you know, different, different or, or feast for Odin where, you know, different spaces require a different commitment of workers, but that's what you do on your turn. Your plates, your workers, you're going to do a thing. And then the round's going to continue with people continuing to place their workers until they can't do it anymore. Or they decide to pass because you they actually have these things called coins in the game, which act as workers, but you can carry them over from round to round if you go ahead, Candace. Or when you finish placing your workers and then you look and Trey has like six more workers and two coins. <laughs> <laughs> that thing, that Sharks. thing. Sharks, people, I tell you, they're sharks. <laughs> well, this is a great thing, right? No matter what game you're playing, some of this some of this information that you get is can transfer. So, you know, Trey's greatness at Agricola translates to Russian railroads, translates to Asian railroads, even better hey! still. There is a, uh, we're having a, a, a moment here because there's a very cute baby mm-hmm. behind Alfred uh, on, on the screen. <laughs> we're, we're waving yeah. at the baby. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. <hi>. About that. <laughs> yeah. Hi. All right. I don't want to distract things too much, no, but yeah. <laughs> it's the baby is distracting. So anyway, every round, when the round ends, when everyone has taken all of their actions or they've passed, um, that's when you score your tracks, like your, your tracks themselves score points. And so you're, so sometimes when you, it seems like, oh, I've done this thing early on. It's not that big a deal. Well, you're going to score that thing six times because there's six rounds in the game. So there's almost like there's a, you know, like a stone rolling down a hill aspect of like the the early gains you make are going to pay off in huge dividends later on. But it's a six round game, end of six rounds, game game's over, and you add up all the points, and whoever has the most points wins. Yeah, and I found that it was really, you know, again, I was kind of getting crushed <laughs> both games, but like it didn't bother me because. It was just so satisfying, again, you know, managing your own rails. Like, at, towards the end of our last game, I was like, ooh, can I do something to unlock my gold tracks? And it was just, again, re- really, really satisfying when I was able to do that because I think that boosted me about, like, 40 points, which was right. really nice. And, yeah, there are just so many cool combos. I mean, Trey, you could probably talk about, or Alfred, about the wagons a bit, too. Well, let's yeah, do too. Let's pivot to because so that was what we were talking about was um, that's just core Russian railroads. Let's talk about Asian railroads now, which is an expansion. And I think there are two. The Asian railroads expansion kind of does two things new. Um, one is the puzzle's different. There's a puzzle to kind of work out in the different tracks of Russian railroads. Asian railroads, you have a new player board, and so you have a new puzzle. Similar, but it's changed enough that you you're reengaging with trying to to figure out this puzzle and asian railroads even has an additional thing where the third track on asian railroads one of the unlocks you can do one of the kind of like big rewards you can get is actually to do a um cardboard um layover what's what's the right term for the an overlay right? an overlay yeah, on the third track where you replace the kind of mediocre third track with a supercharged high reward track. Um, that's really, that's, that's very cool. And, but mostly that's like a different puzzle. Well, and well, no, what I will say that in the original Russian railroads, you had one space that you could kind of overlay. You had this one space. bonus, yes, one yeah. one little tiny point that was it was important though because it was part of the strategy. If you got it early in the game, you would be able to get your points way up from the beginning and maybe get enough that even if you didn't score elsewhere, you would still 
be, that could be, be leveled up now. by the end of the game kind of thing. Even, right? even more, even, even more, more if, right, you got right. it, if you got it early enough. But I will say, so this new one, they give you so much more of it. This is kind of one of those things. It's like, oh, you like that? Well, here's 10 more of them. Like, here's 10 more unlockable <laughs> right. spaces, huge overlay. But there's equally, there's another space you can still unlock on the first track, which is similar minded. There's there's other ways that the, the board demorphs, basically. And then equally, whereas before the factory, you would have certain places to the factory track you would have certain places to personally change things now you have some group dynamic to that changing board and we'll talk about that in a second too i'm sure because the factory changes is enormous because now not only do you have this shared place where you put your workers now you have a shared factory board that alone also really re-engages us together because you know the the thing with russian railroads is it was a little bit solitaire you know even though you had a place where you would congest and a little traffic jam the actual board itself you was just you running about so now you actually have some some. Uh, well, let yeah, me spell out what, what Alfred's talking about in the in the core game of Russian railroads. That's not, like you said, you have four tracks, and the fourth track was your industry slash factory track. And in Russian railroads, this literally ran around the edge of your personal player mat. So you're developing your own exclusive industry track. The major change in Asian railroads is that this industry track is now a shared track. We all have our own tokens on on this shared track. And so when you place a factory down on this track, it's now the case that everyone who passes over it can use it. And so that makes for a much more interactive game because you are literally changing the landscape of the commonly shared board. And that has kind of like huge, in, in terms of interactivity, that ramps up the interactivity from it being exclusively in the area of worker placement to also like how, how are you going to move around this board and how do you change the geography of this board? And also super keenly before, every time you were first someplace, you would do better for it. If you grabbed the things you needed from the board with a few exceptions, you, you would basically do do better for it. In this case, you could actually draft a bit. Somebody else could develop that factory board and you can kind of run through it later and get more for it. Um, potentially if somebody like in this last game we played, I ran through the factory board really early and I didn't nearly do as well as you did, Trey, because you, you kind of, you, you came a little later, but you also, you know, quite importantly, let your second piece grab all the really good stuff that you had laid out over time. A second, yeah, that, right, yep. yeah, and that's and that's slick. a wonderful change. You know, that's that is a little bit of a way that that now you can be a little later to the party and and still do very well for it. Part of this shared industry board, the like like the final new thing that's really part of the industry board is they've introduced a new mechanism um, of wagons, and wagons are a little like this is the trickiest thing to understand when when you are playing the game and what. What the wagon is, is you start the game with every player has three wagons in reserve. When you place a factory onto the industry board, you have the option of placing a wagon. You can place it where you place the factory, but it's not actually required. Uh, the limit is just that you have a, that it go to the same factory. The limit is just that you can only have one wagon at each factory space. What do these wagons do? Well, w they come into the game inactive. They can be activated by anyone's industry token passing through that factory. Once that's happened, your wagon is now upright and it can trigger the action of that factory as an action. So in a sense, it allows you to kind of like double dip on certain factory actions. And so getting your wagons on powerful factory actions and then triggering them 
allows you to like really multiple, you know, leverage your, your factory moves into, into big effects. And so part of the trick is kind of understanding both, um, where can I place my wagons so that they'll be activated? For example, I think Candace, you placed a wagon early in the game that Alfred and I then just skipped. Like we didn't do you any favors. We didn't Messed activate up. your wagon. Messed up. Like you, <laughs> you had to go and trigger it yourself later on. And so you kind of took a tempo hit, uh, on that. Um, many, many a, tempo hits, <laughs> <laughs> many, many tempo hits. And then like some of the, you know, in the nitty gritty of the game later on, you have these three wagons you can place to kind of double dip on industry tiles, but like some of the rewards you can take in form of keys in the game, allow you to, uh, take wagons that you've already spent in the game and put them back on the board. So I think in this last game, I probably took something like five, wagon actions because i re-triggered some of because i was doing a heavy factory industry game i was able to um you know both just through industry movement trigger factories multiple times i was also through the wagons able to get some big end game scoring by triggering you know level nine and level 10 factories uh with the wagon thing so tough thing to understand but that's also because these games i think are super high skill games they're not the most accessible they take repeated plays in order to kind of get under the skin of them i think that the factory board among very skilled players would be highly interactive highly contested um in a, in a way that like i think we're still getting up to speed on barely scratching the surface yeah. yeah barely even it's it's going to be such an enormous part of the gameplay and still it's you only have so many ways to make the moves there even though now there is one other element that we didn't mention, whereas before there was only a finite number of, of engines that you could run on each track, now you can expand that and unlock more. So even more unlocks are happening in the board space as you kind of allow for more trains to be placed. And that in turn can allow more moves to be made. It's a, it's a much more flexible game overall. And infuriatingly so. And I think we're barely, we're barely, we're barely beginning to understand the implications of some of the ways that these tempo moves which was always important for Russian railroads, but are like even maybe more prominent and flexible with, with Asia rail. Well, why don't we get right to it then, Alfred? It sounds like you're saying you preferred this. Yes and no. I loved the tightness of Russian railroads. I loved how I could just like, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a strange and, and it's not a flex, but I was able to get through a game of Russian railroads in like 11 minutes. So the recommended time to 60 <laughs> to 120, you know, I felt a little funny at that because I could, I could just, <laughs> Ace it. If with somebody else playing fast, I would be able to go super quick. We would, that's the reason I got so many plays, right? It was we were able to knock them out. This game is not that game. This game, every move is very consequential. You really have to analyze the state. It takes a lot of buy-in, and which is very satisfying. And the, the rules lawyer in me, which is, is always going to be part of my DNA in playing these games, it's, it's very satisfying to get these combos that you can really work towards. And, and of course, in BGA, you know nobody's you know getting the rules wrong <laughs> right everybody's has to conform to the space so that that's also satisfying in its own regard but it it does it it doesn't make it nearly as fast and it doesn't make it nearly as elegant if we want to use that term right the abstract elegance of a chess or a go in some ways this is asia rails is not that thing it, this really is the game that is sprawling and has all kinds of diverse like these the, the tree of it is is kind of ever growing the branching of it is is enormous and so, yeah, I think this could really be my favorite really soon. I'm just not quite there yet. You're and not I'm a there, little worried. Not. I'm a little worried too that, you know, that you might get stuck in games that just aren't fun because 
the things you're interested in doing just aren't that thing. And the idea of every time being super supple to move around is not as possible. Like you need, if you see certain conductors that you need to do, you hit certain tracks really hard. And I'm just, I don't know. It's like, I, I don't want to write a review on a game that I've only played five times versus a game I played 500 times. So I'm still like on the 500 time one, but I'll come over. I swear I'll get some more reps in and, and be right there. The decision space is really gigantic. And I think I, I'm, I was really enjoying I guess is maybe that's not the right word. I I was taking advantage of the async nature of our game to spend a long time considering my options in a way that I think would be rude in an in-person game. I am not hammering out any of these games in 12 minutes or 30 minutes. <laughs> I might spend 30 minutes on a single move, which is fine if it's uh, 12 o'clock at night Pacific and I know that Alfred has been in bed for five hours already and then that's and that's appropriate uh but it can the decision space can be like we were just trying to finish the game here this morning and I was like trying to rush and I, I couldn't I like I wouldn't allow myself I was so afraid of of, of pay, taking a misstep because I did take some missteps in this game like I forgot to trigger my engineer one round which just left tons of points on the on a table type uh type of thing but candace uh your reaction as more of a first time new new amateur. player amateur <laughs> <laughs> that's the word you're looking for trey um yeah i i think there you kind of nailed it a little bit when you said in the last game you had the industry factory strategy i think there are so many options and someone like me um is kind of just like I'm still not sure like how to focus because <laughs> everything is very tempting and I just, I want to keep moving. You know, I, in the second game, I at least ignored the third track railroad track on my board. And I was like, I'm just going to try to do better at these other two. But then it's like, you also have that whole industry board and you know, you kind of want to do everything. And I think the people who are going to like do really well, um, is well, number one, just having more experience and, you know, there's a lot of skill involved with this, but also having some kind of strategy, like looking at the, the engineers and saying, Ooh, this is what I should be doing because I certainly did not do that. Um, uh -huh. I, I, I almost felt like I'm like along for the ride, but I enjoyed it. Like, it wasn't like, Oh, this is a miserable experience. I'm losing. No, it was, it was, it's really fun. That's I me, love, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love the, you know, all those bonuses along all the tracks. It's just like, Ooh, which one, which one do I want to do? You know, there's just, there are a lot of like really satisfying moments. Um, and yeah, I have not played either one of these games or Agricola for that matter. You, you know, you keep comparing this to Agricola. I've played Agricola like maybe two or three times and I didn't get into it, you know, side you know it's the farming theme i think it's one of those games that like in within the next five years i'm gonna like fall madly in love with <laughs> but um i haven't gotten super into agricola yet and so i'm and i'm definitely not any kind of expert at that so um i can't compare the two but i definitely what i like about this is how it kind of rocks my brain um 
you know, dealing with managing the worker placement, but then also like what all the things you want to do, but what can you really do to be efficient um, and kind of optimize each turn. Um, Again, I feel like an amateur at this, but I really enjoyed it, if that makes sense. It's not a game you're going to quickly grok. I, don't, I mean, I think you can kind of get the, the basics down and maybe one of the things that's fun, it's clearly something they're doing here with the different expansions. Like I think of this as a puzzle game, like on a certain level, Completely. the, the yeah. board themselves totally. is a puzzle and in repeated plays, you start to kind of unlock the possibilities and potential of the puzzle. And one of the things that's rich about it is that there's not that there are solutions, but there's certainly multiple paths to explore and a lot of the pleasures are in exploring these different paths as your mastery of the puzzle grows. I do really feel like this is a game with openings and closings. There's a certain way that, you know, you can notice certain conductors are out and you know, these are the opening moves that spell out certain strategies and synergies. And then there's closings equally that like end your story as the way the board presents. And so being familiar with that, just like in chess, like knowing how to, Knowing those those kind of what what to expect are, is the way that you will succeed. But that isn't to say that you know it's hey it's really wonderful to have a train game that doesn't involve stocks, right? Or like you know there's <laughs> there's difference. You don't have to have every game have a stock market. Like it it's something right. else to it. So it's kind of cool that they they figured out a different route for our trains. The 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 po- I think the positive for me the reason why I'm definitely much more pro Asian rail over the core game is that this is a more interactive game. I've, I feel it, the, the multiplayer solitaire aspects like worker placement by definition to me, like some people think that that's multiplayer solitaire. I don't, I, there's obviously, I think there's a ton of richness in just the worker placement part, but now that it's got the shared industry track that does make the game, I think at high level play, it's going to be far more interactive. So on that level alone, I'm I'm definitely preferring this version. The negative yeah, for me, like my criticism of this game and the way that it still kind of leaves me cold in the same way that Russian Railroads did, is is it's like sometimes this just can feel a little bit like math and I'm just linking combos to combos. And I don't in in the in the in the 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 player that I am that really enjoys when like the theme and the mechanisms of the game are perfectly intertwined. Like this is not one of those games. I feel like the, the rail theme here, like this doesn't feel like a rail game now. And it, it doesn't even need stocks, but you're not, you know, like we all have our own route to Vladivostok. We own all have our own ro- <laughs> route to Osaka. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, it's just points anyway. There's no brutal, you know, placing thing. It's on a common board where you block. Like, so like th- the things that to, in my mind make a rail game. No, this is just not that it's train themed. And that is all, but like the, at least on that level, I, I do think it's cold. And if, if some people played this game and said, this just doesn't translate to fun to me, I would, I would get that because there is a little bit of this game that falls into the, what I sometimes call like the Trismegistus category of like, I'm doing certain things to combo to this other thing that's going to give me this third thing that's going to link to the fourth. And it's all just different forms of A plus B equals C, you know, and and in some games, I find that really um, unpleasant or even baroque. 
here I feel like the there's not so many different things like the puzzle space is really huge, but I don't feel like there's so many different crazy mechanisms. In some ways, it's still manageable. It's a big design space, but I don't feel like it's not it's it's not especially fiddly. Is it fiddly? I don't think it's fiddly. I think this has every potential to be fiddly. This has every potential to be enormously yeah. fiddly on on a board, on the table, on the cardboard. I mean, with all the combos and all the exceptions and little things, like it could oh, be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure I, I want to play say, this game in person. I don't think I want to yeah, play this game in I, person. I was going to say the same thing. Like all, all the math involved, <laughs> BGA just makes it a dream. And, right. you know, now I'm, I'm thinking about, yeah, sitting down in person and scoring all this craziness every round. We would miss sounds... so many triggers. We yeah, would miss so many triggers. Yeah. And oh, also just, somebody, the way the yeah. points, the way the points roll out, like the way that, you know, you move a piece and you advance another piece and there's a, a multiplier here. It's like, unless you really are that statistician where you really are down to yeah. do some, some math and get your abacus out, it's just not happening. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah so even nice just the scoring. To see it. Yeah. To see it. Because exactly. If we were playing on the tabletop, you know, maybe I'm doing the math of what my tracks are scoring. But am I also looking at everybody else's and doing all that? Oh, they've got a doubler on that. And then they have the red track. You know, that sounds a little crazy. <laughs> but BGA the BGA handles all that. implementation yeah. BGA is handles so good. All that. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. person, I can't imagine like scoring round six, scoring my board. I would have had to break out <laughs> pen and paper to add up every track. And I wouldn't have had any confidence that I was doing it right. Uh, I don't, I don't think so interesting. Like this game exists better in an electronic space. I mean, I believe that's one of the reasons why Russian railroad didn't come out super often for us. Well, I, I'm grateful that we, I, we played it originally, uh, you know, it came out years ago. Uh, I think it, when it, you know, when it was circulating still, or was still in the mix, but we played it a couple times and it just didn't, didn't roll out to the table super often. It's interesting table presence wise. There's, you know, it takes up some space and they're kind of group solitaire, doesn't work in favor of, of that fiddliness, but in this BGA implementation, it's it's pretty cool. I'm grateful for you all playing. I think like <laughs> one, um, I think I said this to you before, before the show, you know, some of these moves are so chained, you know, where, where like there may be 20 something different things that happen on someone else's turn. Um, if that happened in real life, my ability to follow that, I'm not, I don't have any confidence that I would be able to follow what someone else did. And I'd almost, I'd almost have to like just surrender and say, I trust what you're doing because I can't follow what's happening. And not only, so it's not just that BGA is automating it. It's that it's going into the log. And so on my own time though, I can go and see, okay, what did Alfred just do there? And I can see that chain of events that actually increases my understanding of the game. But I, I, and I, and this is not, a, I think this is actually something that's not great about my personality. If I were playing a game in person and someone did one of these super moves, I might even be suspicious that they weren't doing it right. Join the rules lawyer side, come to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> well, but could I even like put, like I'm, I might be more of a rules lawyer where like I'm, I'm going to be more like, no, 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 no. Take me through this move every single step of the way. I need to understand this in order to validate your move. Or can I be the better human being and just say, wave my hand and say, I trust you. It's good. I mean, 
it, it has huge consequences. So in a space where it's that rich, but also that consequential, you need to have some confidence that things are being implemented properly. And I'm not saying this as, you know, as someone who's advocating for rules lawyeracy, because I do think it can slow down a game. It can be really less fun for it. But goodness, it's important to know and trust the system at hand. And it is fiddly. So. Okay. So we decided yes, fiddly. <laughs> I, mean, I think so. But, uh, but, but satisfying in its fiddliness, satisfying in how much you can do, satisfying in those bonuses. And other just, other designers do do it really well. I mean, you know, we were we were talking about some of the people, like the person behind the gallerist, Lacerda, right? Am I mm-hmm, getting that name? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they do fiddly great, and so this is just a, a moment where maybe they have they added so much on to a pretty sleek train that they've made it really expansive, and there's a big old caboose on the thing that kind of is not necessarily the most satisfying, but it's cool. So this is a recommend for me. I would say like this is a recommend high skill game high investment, multiple plays, not for everyone, but um, but a recommend from me. How do, how, do, how do other people feel here just to wrap up? Same. I agree. I Play? think, um, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, um, it sounds like, you know, if this is just one part of Ultimate Railroads, it sounds like you are getting a lot <laughs> because I can see just having this, like the Asian Railroads and, you know, not getting bored with it for a while, especially with the different conductors coming out. Um, but yeah, I definitely recommend it. And I think it's really great to be able to try it on Board Game Arena. Great. All right, let's get into our, our member segment here. We, um, we we struggled a little bit of what exactly we were going to talk about this week. We just wanted to get the the two musicians, the two prominent musicians in, in Game Brain, uh, together, get the band uh, <laughs> together here and, and figure out like what what's the best topic. And I think we ultimately settled on uh, how are games like music. But I think um, what I would like to hear, and I, I, I hope that this is true of people listening to the podcast also, is like, I just would like to go over musical biographies for a, a second here. So like Candace, tell us your, your, your musical background and your experience playing and performing yeah. music. Sure thing. Yeah. So I, you know, in elementary school, um, when it was time to try out for strings, I didn't get picked to play strings. So the next year, fourth grade, I tried for band and um, I ended up picking, you know, after we were kind of like starting off the school year, I ended up picking drums as my primary instrument and trumpet was going to be the backup. And uh, so I ended up playing drums in school and you know by the time I got to junior high I wanted to join jazz band so I started taking drum set lessons I you know I did uh, marching band I did pit orchestra like I was the the band geek you know I wanted to do everything everything um that I could musically um and thankfully I had a very supportive family who was like oh we're gonna let our little girl play drums we're gonna encourage that and like so that's really cool because I know a lot of people would be like oh you know you're not playing drums you're a girl you know so um so that was that was super cool and then um fast forward I'm in college I start um kind of starting little bands here and there um, I started playing with a singer songwriter in the Philadelphia area um this guy Dave Devlin and that was when um, that was when I really started playing gigs. And I was also I actually did like this cover band with these older guys, and 
learned a lot. I learned a lot about music because I kind of grew up listening to a lot of um, pop, R&B and hip hop. And, you know, joining a cover band with people who were like 10 years older than me, um, <laughs> playing some different alternative and folk rock songs that uh, I had never heard, um, let alone played, um, kind of just op- exposed me to a lot of different music. And uh, then eventually in 2005, um, I joined uh, a band in Philly called Polymer. Um, and we were, uh, is kind of like upbeat rock music, I would say. I always tell people like in kind of uh, Jimmy world in terms of uh, mel- vocal melodies, but at the drive-in in terms of energy and like our, we were very known for our live show, like lots of jumping around, like high energy, upbeat, anthematic rock music. And, you know, we took that really, really seriously um, like we would never go on vacation. We're like, it's the band where we rehearse, you know, X amount of nights a week. And, you know, we're play gigs. That's all we do. Like we did not drink or anything before gigs. Like we just took it super, like it was a business right. to us too. Um, as well as a creative outlet. And we did, we never did any kind of, uh, big tours, but we would do little, uh, little East coast, you know, long weekend tours kind of thing. Um, and then, Fast forward, moving out to LA, I I started a band out here that kind of fizzled by some of the flakiness that can be associated with LA. <laughs> um, uh, actually, it's like one of my, uh, I think this band would have been like so awesome, but it just kind of fell apart. And uh, But then that spiraled into what was my last project, Zookeeper's Palace. And um you know, at, at some point in this time frame, I picked up guitar. Um, my dad was a guitarist. And uh, so there, there was always music. Like he had a huge vinyl collection. There's always music in my house. And my dad listened to everything. So that's part of where it comes from um, also. And, you know, uh, at some point I remember uh, visiting, like after I was living in LA, visiting my dad, talking about music and like hearing him geek out over the fusion band Return of Forever, um, Romantic Warrior, that album was just like, it was so cool. And it was like reminding me of like something, how I like geek out about like the Mars Volta. And it was just cool seeing him from like his generation of like this fusion music was like the wow factor. But anyway, I went through lots of like different phases of listening to lots of different things. I went through like a hard rock phase, an indie rock phase, a uh, super jazz phase. I still like love, I listen to a lot of different things. Um, but then I kind of, uh, with uh, my former keyboardist and my partner, Matt, and I started this band Zookeeper's Palace. And it was kind of like, the, our whole thing was like very percussively driven, groove based and progressive, I guess, alternative rock, something in there. Um And, you know, yeah, we were doing that for a while. We played, you know, every spot in L.A. Uh, We even played a sold-out Roxy show, which we did not sell out. (laughs) We just happened to be the opener on a band or on a night that, like, legit, like, surprised us because it was a Sunday gig. I remember we were stressing, like, oh, we got to call friends, like, come, come buy tickets, come to this show. You know, we're playing at the Roxy and we're the first band. And we got there kind of with our heads like hanging low, like, oh, this is going to be like a week show. And there's just a line up Sunset Boulevard. And we're just like, holy cow, how did this happen? So 
Um, so yeah, so I haven't like, I've never done any crazy, um, big tours or anything, just like small pockets. Um, I did have a really cool experience playing with a, a project that used to be in the LA area called the boogie that was, um, Raphael Sadiq was kind of like mentoring the boogie and I got to play drums and, um, got to fly to New York to do a cool little showcase for that. Um, when there was like a contest for Rolling Stone magazine that we were in and, uh, yeah, so I've just kind of done like a little bit and, uh, the thing is, um, drums are my primary. I play guitar. I can play other things because I did a lot of writing of the initial ideas for Zookeeper's Palace. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I know how to play bass enough to like just throw down. I know how to record enough to like throw down ideas and everything. Um, so I was kind of the unspoken like leader of that project. Um, but yeah, that and, and actually it, like it got to a point in 2018 where I needed to kind of take a break from music because I think I like... I overdid it or something emotionally okay. with e being a performer and the stress of dealing with personnel and just like listening to, to music as an outlet for like any moments where I'm dealing with depression and how much like music just kind of carried me. I hit this point where I almost like I just hard reset. And that's actually how I get like got into gaming is <laughs> I games became therapeutic and I like started delving down that hobby and gotcha. you know now I'm back um and I always equate it with you know if you eat a lot of macaroni and cheese and you eat so much you love macaroni and cheese but then you're like oh you feel gross about it and you're like I don't want any mac and cheese for a while I feel like I hit that point with music because I was so so intense about it um and so I was just like I need to take a break from this and enter board games, but I, I still have all my drums and, you know, I'm, I want to get back into it a little more actively, but I'm not really doing, uh, I'm definitely not performing actively at the moment, but, um, I so still have a deep I take a break. For... You meant I'm going to take a break from being in a band. So I'm going to design a board game about being in a band. <laughs> that, that's the break. It kind of got there. It kind of got there as my like obsession from music kind of also <laughs> shifted into the, the board game space. Um, and then just, you know, feeling there was a, a gap there of like, there's nothing really out there that I've seen yet that gives you the experience of, Hey, I'm building a band and I'm going to play gigs and, you know, going through some of those struggles. So yeah. So that's where the inspiration for like me designing my sure. game kind of. Are, are you saying that you're ready? Up. You're ready for some more Mac and cheese? though or <laughs> oh yeah the, oh yeah you're ready for more now, mac and cheese I, I just now i if we're going with this metaphor now i just need to find a uh, space on my plate <laughs> for said mac and cheese because i have pie and vegetables and all this other stuff on my plate right now but uh yes yes i am ready if i could i just need to carve out some space on my plate <laughs> alfred uh Tough act to follow there. Good luck. Google <laughs> <laughs> bio, go. Yeah, no, I mean, just I can, I just mean to speak to one thing that Kenneth was saying, though. It's oh, like sure. taking your passion and commodifying it, or, you know, forcing yourself to kind of view it through the kind of lens of, of other people's, like either saying yay or nay, both from a sales point of view or from like a co band thing. It's really tough. My heart goes out to you because I've definitely had struggles and moments in my own biography where, 
because of someone else's decision or because of things around me that my own passion has waned for certain aspects. And I totally feel for you in that situation. And very similar to yourself, I have a, an elementary school, they carted out the orchestra and I picked an instrument and that they said that was too small for that instrument. I was going to be a bassoonist and that would, that would have gone terribly, but they were like, you're too small for bassoon. So here's a clarinet. And so I play clarinet first. And then at a certain point in junior high, they're like, we need bass players. And I'm like, I, I, I love that sound. I love that thing. So I became a double bass player and I kept going, not so much with clarinet, but with bass clarinet that took me to college where I studied jazz, um, I did some classical music too, and I had some other chops, but I really was like, I'm going to be a session jazz musician. And then my bass player, my bass player teacher, uh, very kindly said, you should quit because you're clearly not cut out for this. It was the oh, best wow. gift. It was wonderful. No, I mean, it was, I was <laughs> really cool. dissatisfied with playing dead people all the time. And mm. jazz presented that to me, at least at the time I went to a trad kind of school where they're just like teaching the, what they call the, you know, the real book or the fake book. And it, it's all this, you know, classic, amazing music, but then it's all these dead composers and they're not really, you're not really communicating so much with new, you're communicating with old. And that just wasn't mm. for me. And at the same time, uh, I was into electronic music, but I had no idea how I would fit in with that. And so that became my, my core passion. Once I was able to get off that jazz train, um, I, I started to increasingly uh, do more electronic sounds, be a producer, be an engineer be a DJ out in spaces. And, and I guess the short of it is, you know, had a, a long career being just as a core musician and performer, like, you know, 54 countries and lots of, lots of world tours and lots of uh, running around America and, and doing that thing over a thousand shows in this electronic form. And, um, well, how, so did, that, that, how did that happen, Alfred? Did you, you got out of college and just started doing it or what, what, what was the path? Cause you, you just kind of said like, well, so I became a yeah. professional <laughs> musician touring the world. the world. <laughs> there had to be more to it than that. Or like, what was the path to, to how that happened? Yeah, no, there's the most improbability. So like at the same time I was quitting doing jazz, I was being really involved with college radio. That college radio station was just happened to be at that moment, that crux between ter terrestrial traditional radio and internet radio. That internet radio station became this thing called Dub Lab. When, I, when we all left college, we kind of banded together and formed a, a collective. This is 98. That was full of already kind of on the way successful musicians and DJs from the LA area. And then a lot of us, who were just passionate about sound and didn't know our way in it. And so there was a lot of just like, well, how are they doing it? What are the pitfalls and the kind of better practices that are going on? LA used to be very tribal in the sense that, you know, like there's these divisions, these clear divisions of genres and styles that lived partially in different clubs, but also in personnel that kind of ruled their little fiefdoms, let's say. And you couldn't really be part of it unless you kind of swore allegiance to certain things, but that was all falling apart in the late, late nineties that system of like, you know, clearly demarked tempo and club was, was kind of going away. And we, I was a huge beneficiary of that transition because I had pretty wide ears. And so being able to play in a lot of different situations opened a lot of doors. Um, Dub Lab indeed had, you know, started to get a kind of international following as I started putting out records with Dub Lab and other labels, um, including international labels like Ninja Tune or Warp that allowed for um, more different years elsewhere and then travel to the, the markets that they were in. So doing the UK a lot at first and Japan a lot at first. And then that spilled out into other parts of East Asia and other parts of Europe. And then eventually getting to the Eastern European area, as well as emerging markets like South America and Africa and being able to play through 
and just kind of meet more people. It's very much, it's like one thing begets the next. You play to, to a festival in some place where that's brave and bold. And it just kind of some, you know, even if it's 1% of 1% of 1%, if you play that numbers game, you're going to meet more interested people to both do releases with, collaborate with, remix, and eventually play to. Well, let me, so, let me ask a really and, basic question. I'm sorry. Sure. Can, can and then I, I have a question too after. Okay. Well, well, actually, why don't you go first? I've talked enough. Candace, why don't you go? <laughs> okay, you sure? All right, I'll yeah. go. Um, so, so Alfred, I told you the other night, but yeah, the, the first time I guess I encountered your music as Daedalus um, was when you were, uh, you, when you uh, collaborated with Kneebody, mm-hmm. um, which Kneebody is uh, this amazing fusion band that has, they're all amazing musicians, but the drummer, especially Nate Wood, is like one of my favorite uh, dr- drummers, especially in that genre. And, mm-hmm. you know, I went to the Echo or Echoplex in LA and saw what they were calling uh, Needless, yeah. which is Kneebody and Daedalus together. And it was just, <laughs> it was an incredible show. So I was just curious how you um, ended up hooking up with those guys yeah i mean i went to high school with ben wendell who was the saxophonist for anybody so we always kept in touch with each other i had been on countless productions that i did on my records but in terms of that project like there was these moments so there was this one festival in france called jazz of vienna and they liked this idea of collaboration so i was brought out as a as a kind of a co-collaborator uh for anybody on this like kind of random gig and then that just kind of planted the seed of like, well, we can do so much more with if we expand our sound palette from just traditional instrumentation or instrumentation with pedals to vast electronic. Uh, so I should mention this already that like I'm a huge beneficiary not only of of the kind of opportunities where the expanding markets that electronic music is pouring, but also the technology behind it. Before, if you wanted to play music in general, you'd have to have fingers on a string or blow, you know, air through a, or take a stick on a drum and controllers and kind of the way that the laptop found their way on stages and even DJ technology in terms of CDJs and whatnot have really expanded our understanding of what performance can be. And that in turn has changed where sounds can kind of rest. Like now we live in a moment where there's a lot of remix constantly, you know, you take established bands and they're not only playing other people's music, but they're playing sounds that would be impossible to foresee you know a decade or two ago so i i feel like wonderfully i've been kind of at the forefront of that in terms of controllers and i've kind of subsequently gone on to teach that at berkeley that's what i do now as my day-to-day and still love the idea of touring and berkeley certainly supportive but let's be honest like there's not really gigs right now we're all waiting for that to come back online (laughs) so (laughs) it's been wonderful to kind of teach these ideas let me ask my my musical I'm, i'm a musical muggle um (laughs) <laughs> Let me ask this very basic question. When you're when you were performing back then or performing now, I don't have a sense of like are you do you ever repeat yourself? Is how much is improvisational when you're doing it? Like is there like do you is there Daedalus songs? Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure. Am I saying that wrong, by the way? How do you pronounce uh I say Daedalus or Daedalus. Daedalus. Daedalus is, yeah, I have too much of a Cali accent. But like, is there such a thing as that, like, do you perform Daedalus songs or is it always an improvisational thing that you're doing? Um, I don't usually perform my own music. I, I, I read around 2009, I stopped performing my own music live because it would take these intimate songs and, and productions and distend them to like fit sometimes thousands of people. It just felt weird. And Wasn't a good I fit. like, it, it didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't produce the music that, that, people were more voracious for on stages, especially in the EDM world as that became more and more dominant. 
it just feels strange to kind of have these like you know sample filled little plunderphonic uh you know ditties and try to like you know give it a big backbeat and just like watch the, the audience squirm. <laughs> not my most favorite thing um and so and so equally I, I kind of just started to do things where i would i would be take my plunderphonics towards those kind of big bigger sounds and so each performance in total is improvised but there's lots of moving parts that maybe if you really just if I were to distend them individually, they would be kind of become represent like certain songs or ideas. I, I like this idea of like genres have rhythm that can transcend their tempos or can send, can transcend the original production. And so if you take a gesture from something and move it elsewhere, like if you're from Philly, you know, there's like a Philly sound, you can take that Philly sound and I can up the tempo to a place that's maybe more similar to what Chicago does with juke. And then suddenly it's, somewhere else it's an original but it's of that moment that is hopefully honoring the audience that i'm playing in front of but also you know maybe at some level still owed deeply to other other like moments and productions and genres so that's that that like your question Trent? absolutely absolutely um it also sounds like you're really considering your audience like at like that's a really important thing in performing is the relationship with the audience, the feedback from the audience, you consider the audience and, and not, not to pivot to board games exactly right here, but like with board games, like the players are the audience, like we're both the performers and the players, or mm-hmm. we can maybe start to get into this distinction between like playing music versus creating it. And, you know, obviously this is not going to be a one-to-one sure. Uh, you know, metaphor for like how games and music are are similar. But I, I found like, for example, I exist pretty heavily in the LARP world where performer and audience are the same. And well, can but, I, can I speak to that just really briefly? Sure. this idea that, you know, as a musician, you can easily turn your back on the audience, but will you be as satisfied or will the audiences be as satisfied with the interaction? And I think the same thing with bo- the board game space, we talk about satisfaction often, uh, being mercurial, right? Different games have different levels and degrees by which we can be satisfied or, or be happy about the consequences. But oftentimes that multiplayer solitaire is not usually ranked as being a happy place. It's usually a negative. And I think kind of in the same way of being a musician, you can be cognizant of these things or not, but there's something about deciding altogether that we are playing a game and that there will be winners or losers, but we are all aiming for the similar goal of doing the best we can with the pieces we have on the table. There's everything to do with music in that regard. There's the, you know, from the most fundamental level of notes playing nice together to the audience and an artist working together for a, for an aim. I think games have all of that. I guess it depends also like the kind of music that we're talking about. Like if we're going to do the metaphor, then probably like jazz maps into game, onto game playing better than some other form of music where, where someone who's like a symphony, I would imagine is, is kind of a, about you're performing it as you're meant to do it. Right. In- but there's plenty of games like that. There's plenty of games that want to be like that, where, you know, there's like the, the optimum play, you know, we're talking almost more like chess like games, right. Where there is, there is pretty, you know, the rules are very, are are writ really large and you are made to abstract it in this kind of fashion. I think counterpoint, if you're going to talk about classical music really operates the same way. There's certain ways that the notes are supposed to proceed. And when they do, there's an elegance that shows up because of how, how you can uh, marvel at the clockwork. And I think there's games like that too. I think, you know, when we're talking about how games are like music, 
Um, I think of board games are very similar to, you know, the experience of like playing a board game is similar to the experience of uh, listening to an album um, mm -hmm. in that somebody made this thing that flows a certain way and, you know, they want you to kind of experience that, that flow that they've created. Um, and in the similar thing to music, it's going to hit different people, different players uh, differently. Like the same game is going to hit different players in a different way and the same with music. Um, so, you know, as a specific example, uh, Twilight Imperium, you know, that is not a game for everyone. And I love it. I love that it hits every emotion that I could ever want <laughs> when I'm playing a game. Um, but it, similarly, I also, again, to bring up the Mars Volta, um, you know, not everybody, some people will cringe if they listen to the Mars Volta. And I just sit there with my like jaw dropped in like in awe with what they've, you know, created and how they play music and how they hit, they fuse all these different styles to have this like really unique sound. So, you know, I'm always kind of seeking that kind of thing out when I'm playing board games. Like I want something, I want a special experience, uh, just like when I'm, again, like listening to an album. And again, the other other thing is like the the different emotions. You know, an album is going to have low points and high points and upbeat moments, and and I think board games can translate similarly. Uh, but it kind of depends on who's playing it, <laughs> and that kind of goes back to like are are the players the band <laughs> like playing together, or are they sitting in the audience kind of listening? to the band. And can I say in this point too, that I feel it's funny. We oftentimes have this idea of what makes a good song or a bad song or a good game or a bad game. But the truth of the matter is, is that you never can presume for an audience, no matter how knowledgeable or non-knowledgeable they are, how much they're open to the intrigues of what's in the backstory of makes what makes this band interesting or a game good. People know themselves, they know their taste. And you know they, that can be expanded that taste can be moved around but the actual way by which they access the thing it's they're just coming with their what they have on on hand and so I, I do think it's interesting sometimes the game world people get stuck in the pop hits they get stuck in the big games the Catans or you know some wingspan or you know i mean I, i'm not saying right, that right. games are, are are not not good at those levels but there is something about them being the popular Commercial choices hit. yeah mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's it's nice to know that there's also deep cuts and there's people who are in our game group who who are going to go out of their way for the obscure, the the cult cult band let's say uh, ideas because it it scratches this thing of not only they like the game perhaps but they also like the the fact that they can kind of be the obscurest and kind of you know have their rare grooves and and kind of we we can appreciate their digging for those kind of those those choice cuts as much as they are you know, maybe familiar, cognitive, you know, they can talk about the, the big songs, but it's interesting, this idea of reviewing any of this stuff, and we can't presume to know better than the person who's enjoying what they enjoy. And that's beautiful. Right. And that's like, that's one of the things that always struck me with, you know, Cole Worley is um, definitely like one of my favorite designers and he's kind of obscure and like, he's always, he makes really interesting choices. And that's the same thing 
that I love about like different music that I love, like, you know, Bjork, we were talking about Bjork earlier, who's probably like my favorite musical artist. I mean, she's, she's more than just a musician. You know, I think she's a living piece of artwork, but she's always just doing something different, something fresh. And I think Cole Worley is kind of an example of something like that in the board game world where, you know, you may not like, you may not love all his games, but they're definitely like doing something a little different all the time. And, you know, he's kind of progressive like that. So there's kind of a similar thing we're doing. And I think this is kind of what you already said, Candice, of like when we we're making group decisions and our mood matters and our tastes matter and you're you know making a group decision of you know what board game we're pulling off the shelf is often similar to we've got four people in a car on a road trip what are we going to listen to like getting everybody on the same page is something that we talk about all the time in the podcast here and I'm and that's and that's not always easy um but it also like i think that is a, it, i i am definitely resonating with the idea of you know, yes, I think that there's sometimes it's fair to say this is a good piece of music or a bad piece of music, but but more often it's simply like, what what do you particularly like? What are you in the mood for? There's and you know, I think Alfred, you were talking about pop pop music or whatever. There's plenty of pop I love, but there's plenty of times where I'm just not in the mood for that, or I'm 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 ready for something as Candace is saying that's obscure, but not everybody's necessarily down for obscure you got to find people that are ready for your level of of obscure and that's maybe goes like because we talk about this all the time of like getting people to buy into what's the weird thing that we want to explore when we pull a certain game or album off the shelf well especially if you're a voracious listener sometimes you get tired of the things that kind of pass just easily buy and you want to get on the deep cuts you want to go in for those and so i will say there's an aspect of djing and if i could bring in the dj culture idea and you see a really good dj they can get anything to work they can play the weirdest songs as long as the song preceding it makes sense of what's to come they're able to do incredible feats of mixing essentially and i think the same thing for these these curators of games like you know yourself and tom and matt and and candace i know you're this for for people and and you know there's there's people in our group that really do play that DJ role of bringing something to the table to make sense of the next thing they want to bring to the table, right? Like mm. getting you hyped because of their own enthusiasms and the way they present the game and the way it's expressed is a huge part of the enjoyment that I've gained from these kind of the more Baroque games that have come to the table. Well, Alfred, why don't you talk about that process though, of like getting from as a DJ, getting from one song to the next, if you can, because I think that sounds really interesting because that seems like a certain kind of problem solving that's almost like playing a game, isn't it? No, totally. I mean, there there is an aspect of you have to kind of yes and things. And so not to bring in some other, other kind of concept, but this idea of a train wreck, the idea of the thing that falls apart is, is key to DJing um, because what you are doing is you're setting precedent and you're setting expectation. And then you are defining those expectations in a, in a very concise and precise way that both is eliciting like, oh, we are going somewhere else, we're traveling somewhere else. And yet there's enough continuousness from the previous that that kind of like be it tempo or be it harmony, melody that catches your ear and makes it so, makes it work. And that's the way it works for DJing. And the way I would put that with board gaming is that a, a kind of a mechanism is brought to the table. Say like we're talking about worker placement, like we were talking with Russian railroads and the idea that you know you could play Russian railroads and take that to an agricola, 
so smooth that transition and yet agricola is this great but maybe challenging game for people to face partially because of the image of the game or the kind of you know farm we're talking like farmers you know and like <laughs> right. it, it may not be the most interesting thing initially but this idea that maybe you can ease somebody into it both because you get them connection. started on this like yeah this this connection and there really is a tempo thing too where it's like I like the kind of fast-paced nature of this, and maybe we slow it down just a little bit with an agricola, but it's still rich and vibrant and moving fast as a group. I think that'd be a perfect way to DJ that, even though obviously hours at a time rather than this kind of few seconds that we would get in DJing, but not dissimilar. Yeah, well, the other thing right. I the other thing I noticed um, was just you know now that I'm designing a game and going through that kind of process, um, and I've also you know written and produced records and gone through you know that process of being in the studio and taking songs and make putting them into an album and adding the production you know different effects and everything um there are some really strong similarities between creating an album producing an album um not just writing the songs but also um just like the the whole process that's really similar to uh, creating a board game uh, because, I mean, you could think of something like playtesting a game. Like when I'm playtesting a game, I'm, it's like you're taking a song out to a gig um, and you're, you're testing it out and you're saying like, how are people vibing with it? You know, what is the response to this? And then you're Do I take out the second chorus? Do I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you take it back to the studio and you work on it some more. And then you go back to your next show and you do it again. And that's a, there's such a parallel between um, playtesting a board game. And then it's like once you've gotten those songs kind of dialed in and now you're talking about um, actually recording them and making your album, um, often you'll work with a producer. Someone will be kind of producing in the within your band. Um, and, and that's when you're kind of going through the development process of a board game, like taking it to a, a different set of eyes who's going to help you kind of really dial it in and add some nice accents and everything and kind of, you know, you, you keep just improving them until, so there's like, there are a lot of like similarities between the creation of a board game and the creation of an album as well. Yeah, both art forms are temporal. You have to have a passage of time. There has to be events that are you know preceding or receding after events. It, it makes all the sense that these would be like totally akin to each other. And yet, one thing I will say is that you know oftentimes with the band type situation, you're choosing your members, you're choosing the people you're with. You don't always choose your game group. I would hope that you would curate it. You would hope that you would have like you know people all similarly going for the same goals, working towards the same song, but. Maybe this is a place where that schism is both like fun and also jarring that you don't usually <laughs> necessarily choose the person to the left and right of you, unlike with music. Well, right. right. Yeah. You don't want everybody to be the same. You want them to complement each other in right. some ways. I don't know. Um, ch changing up a little bit here. I, I was able to watch uh, the Beatles documentary, Get Back recently i'm seeing a nodding head from alfred candace have you had a chance to no and dimitri's gonna be mad at me because dimitri keeps telling me check this out check this out and i keep forgetting until someone from game brain says oh remember that thing and so i'm i'm gonna put so it I'm on my radar yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
I keep forgetting to check it out. I would love to. I love music documentaries. Well, the, I, my point of, of seeing was just, I, I thought this was such a, a great record of the creative process of seeing the Beatles work on songs and how they go about doing it. I mean, one, it gives you a appreciation for the genius of the individual members of the band, but also just watching it happen. And I think there's something to the loops. If you, if you watch uh, Paul McCartney working on a song and it's just repeating over and over an idea and hearing it back. And also I, I, one thing that was really interesting watching it is that McCartney's not just in a room by himself. It helps that there are other people around and he can see their reaction and he's very open to having people kind of, uh, Lennon especially is good at just kind of like bouncing back stuff at him to just make that next loop different and, and better. And so I, I was really inspired by, like, I feel like anyone who aspires to anything artistic should watch this movie just for like learning the process. Uh, like I think Stephen King's novel on writing on writing was kind of a similar thing of like just some basic stuff. If you want to do something creative, read the Stephen King book on writing, watch watch this movie. But I also maybe again to tie it back to board games, it seems to me that there's something in music that like loops are so important, both in terms of music is you know, very few songs are played without repetition all the way through. We do loops. We vary on the loops. Board games are all based on, on loops. Most games are based on loops and core loops, but that's also how like you, you repeat it, you iterate, you change, you, you've, you've built a foundation to do other things, but that also can be something that's not just solo. The, the act of having audience and other people collaborate with you takes it to the place that it, it needs to be. And so like, while I understand that solo board games are a thing and that people enjoy them, I do, I do feel like playing with other people is always going to be more desirable and more interesting. You're going to get to a better place in, in the end by doing so. Well, and you look at the solo games that are successful, the Automata, uh, Automata or whatever. Exactly. That's well considered to feel like you are in a, in a situation where there is critic, there is decisions that, that matter. Basically it's, it's not just free endless time to solve the, the puzzle. You're not just putting the pieces together. That would be a different po podcast about, you know, assembling puzzles, but we're in our kind of gameness, we are looking towards having that consequential feeling. And indeed, like a lot of the design of these games is probably just as good. They're only as good as your play testers. You're only as good as the designers to that are around you also creating. And we're all probably better now that we are so familiar with so many of these games. I only can imagine what's coming forward because of the kind of richness of game space that we've developed. Right? Yeah. Like one thing that <laughs> is always kind of a struggle. Uh, and I don't know, Daedalus, if you've experienced this too, um, but whenever we were writing music, you know, we'd, we'd come up with these dope bridges that would have this like, cool, like we're jamming. And sometimes when you're <laughs> recording that, you want to like, just let it go on forever. But one of the toughest calls, I feel like in every band that I played in, whenever we record is like cutting it down. Um, so now I'm like starting to think about um, moments in board games where you want to have these like really exciting little moments, but you don't want it to like drag too long because you want people to like finish it and then want to play it again. And that that's something I'm definitely going to be kind of like 
thinking of as I continue like designing and developing my game is is that because you know as the musician I wanted to keep yeah let's keep this jam going yeah you keep going but you know at some point it's just better for somebody for the listener to just like listen to it and be like whoa that was really cool it's over ah I gotta start it again I gotta start it again and kind of get something that hits that sweet spot where people want to keep playing it it's, it's good to recognize, too, that part of the satisfaction you have as a musician is the actual performing of it in a group, and you're kind of getting something not only by the, the flat level of the sound, but also in the performance of it. You're, you're, you're physically embodying the sounds, right, in the space. And so your, your enjoyment's, like, working on a lot of levels. And for someone playing the game, I think there's something similar where you can be kind of caught in these kind of unfortunate loops where you're just not nothing's of consequence. You're not having any cadences. It's not like coming to any kind of completion. Mm -hmm. And that can be less satisfying because you're not hitting all, all the forms. And I do find it interesting. Some of these games where they have like their, you all familiar with like plagal cadences, like basically cadences that are less consequential versus like authentic cadences that are actually coming to a conclusion. So you can think of the end of a game as being like kind of an authentic cadence where you're actually having to finish. Everybody's done. Pieces come off the, t the board. But there's things like false cadences and plagal cadences. Plagal cadences are like going from a four to one rather than a five to one. It just doesn't feel as resultant. And of course, there's uses to have these kind of false ends or these kind of moments in a game where you have to kind of, kind of come to a reflection. In music, it happens all the time where you just have especially in electronic music, we have this like drop culture, these like big EDM builds to a big drop. And <laughs> the problem in part is that like, you want that same drop five seconds later, just a few measures right. later, you want another one of these like candy moments. And of course, in games, you have versions of this in a lot of games where there's kind of constantly giving you candy and constantly giving you something to like, oh, this is something else that I can look forward to. But if it doesn't have a true ending, it doesn't feel as satisfying. And I I have that happen to me all the time in games, partially because I don't know the game necessarily. I don't know what the person intended. I came to a kind of a rocky start, just kind of like falls apart. And it just doesn't feel like I had clarity. And I don't know to blame myself or the game sometimes for that lack mm. of, of we, we can't tie that into the, the actual game we reviewed here today. And then I think like the strength of a game like uh, Ark Nova, which we recently reviewed glow glowingly, is like that game always has, or at least so far, has felt like it has a great ending. Mm -hmm. It has it has a big climactic ending that everyone feels involved, in, and there's a lot of tension in that ending. And I think the danger of um, a game like Terraforming Mars, which is similar to Ark Nova, but kind of like doesn't nail the ending right, and Asian, you know, Russian roads, Asian roads fall into this, is the kind of wah wah moment of Candace turn six has finished her game she has passed it is over and now you're watching some other jerk take five more Try. turns Try. like that stinks <laughs> that feels terrible that is and it, is that a little bit of what you're talking about in terms of like how the ending comes about in 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 music a little bit but like that's definitely a feel bad that's not a shared player experience in which we're all ennobled for our shared interactive experience here yeah can you imagine being in a band and basically you finish and you're tacit for the last five measures of a song you're just like looking at the guitarist <laughs> like you're still playing what's going on nobody wins nobody wins that says, even though obviously points are being scored either way but yeah but that is a thing in music though, right? We're like in jazz, especially where like someone is just going on and you're like, 
<laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yes, but like usually it's for this kind of this kind of idea that you are you are collectively finishing the song, even if you're not playing, you are still you know. And silence can actually be a very powerful part mm-hmm. of music, obviously, and and much the same way. Like I think there can be some very satisfying games where you're sitting on the sidelines, just knowing that you've played your part or that the the you know thing is unfolding. But it's just interesting in that kind of way. Silence can sometimes, or like you know, play can be the the thing and sometimes like watching it happen by others is also the thing and i do think there is an a, element of these games where we all think of ourselves as a player doing the music but sometimes we're in the audience as well and that is also equally a satisfying place to be it just it's really about how the game presents that possibility i think oh well, candace go ahead god i was just gonna say uh one other thing that i wanted to make sure i added when it comes to you know to the idea of how writing music is similar to creating board games is, and I, you know, I'm speaking from my experience, but I feel like um, designers will usually have some kind of hook um, in a similar fashion. Like if I'm starting a song idea, I'm either saying like, hey guys, I have this drum beat and this bass line. And like, that's kind of like what we build the whole song on. So like in my game, I knew like, I was like, I want to have deck building Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew, I knew the theme, but like I had this like kind of hook that I started with. And then I'm like now adding all the clarinets and <laughs> and horns and other things to kind of, you know, make it into a full song. Or I guess if I'm, I'm I keep going back and forth between it, a board game being a song versus or an album. But um, but I think it's like really interesting how like writing wise, you know, we have these hooks that we're kind of trying to showcase and build a whole journey around. And I think it's the same process, like when you're kind of creating a board game and your hooks could start different places. Like it could be a guitar and a vocal melody. It could just be a, a keyboard ditty, you know, we're all, we're um, all wired for, we're all wired for something different. We're all wired for a little right. gimmick just because there isn't just one song. We didn't end at the Beatles, right? The Beatles did some great things, but we didn't stop there. There was new music to be found. There was new things. And it's kind of gives us all hope that maybe there's more game that's out there rather than just the go-to pull down from the, from the wall and show, right? Like it's right. As maybe as a, as a final thought for me, maybe I think there is a interesting distinction between, for example, like performing music versus composing music. And, you know, we, um, Yes, I've designed a board game. Candice, you're designing a, a, a board game. I think one of the things that's inherently more interesting about the board game field is that it is you are not when you consume board games, it is not at all a passive experience. And I'm not saying that listening to music is a passive experience, but your degree of interactivity as a consumer of music, like you're having a personal experience. But you know, I think one of the real advantages of board games is that it does require a lot of interactivity, decision-making, participation that is more akin to performing music on a stage. Whether you composed it or not, you're then engaging with the material. You are not a passive consumer of, of, the, of the content that, um, that I think maybe keeps us going a little bit more as, ter- as terms of like whether or not we actually design board games, just our participation in the medium is is more interactive and it requires more of you. And it also generates a unique experience every time. And, I, and I'm not sure that that is the case for that necessarily for other kinds of media. Um, like, for example, my father sometimes criticizes me, like, how can you watch that movie 
multiple times. I was like, well, I'm having a different experience every time I watch this movie. I'm picking up. I think it's good enough that I'm experiencing new or even enjoying the same things is 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 enough. Um, but again, I think like if I can be a little snobby about it, I do think like board games do take it to a different level of you're going to get a unique thing, good or bad, every single time you you play a game. All right. Any other final thoughts on how games are like music? Just a small little topic here at Game Brain Podcast. <laughs> the enormity is tough. This is, it's so, it's so uh, all encompassing. Right. Well, I thank you very much uh, to both of you. I, I found this really interesting. I hope uh, our, our listeners did as to thank you for sharing uh, your background on this and your, and your insights. Uh, I'm really super happy that you're, you're both my, my friends and that I get to game with you all the time. And our, our list of games uh, that our performances the uh, future performances yeah yeah. a lot more gigs uh in in the future especially once we can get together in person so thank you thank you both yeah thank you and thank you i don't know if it was trey or alfred who like suggested that we finally do this alfred um, it's great and i feel like you know we could probably keep talking on and on for hours Mm -hmm. about this um but yes, it is a podcast, so we should cut it. <laughs> no, Alfred yeah, said, no, I want to do an episode with Candace. No, and I didn't know we had so much overlap, Candace, too. That's amazing. Like, so I have cool. a band project right now with Dean Anthony Parks, actually. I don't know if you're familiar. <gasps> yeah. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. Oh, you mentioned man. the Mars Volta a couple I mean, times. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Every drummer who's ever played with the Mars Volta. Ugh. And, like, I, I think... Uh, you need to say, on a, tell like, people what Mars Volta is. is. I don't know what it is. What it, t- t- give, explain to people what Mars Volta... Can you explain it's, it? Is it unexplainable? No, it's unexplainable. No, okay. it, it's, it's a... I would say, like, a modern, like, progressive rock band that, you know, they've... They, they come from a background... The core musicians in the band come from a, ba- a band called At The Drive-In, which was kind of a mm-hmm. post-hardcore kind of band and they kind of evolved and have lots of um like their their backgrounds i think they're um el paso texas right yes el paso texas so they so a unique place yeah it's it's very very um unique music and all of their albums especially the earlier few um truly take you on a journey Mm -hmm. um you know they're they're all concept albums so there's like a whole a, a whole journey and it's just I don't know I'd just say go check it out if you've never listened to it uh Deloused in the Comatorium I would say is the best best place to start I think Flea played bass on some of the tracks um just try to listen and, to the whole thing cuz you will get a, a a kind of a more than just single song image yes. if you get the whole record and they also yeah. were they won some grammys they kind of got you know they got some overground look it isn't the most uh, obtuse or obscure thing but they go in there's so much musicality right. there it's amazing yep and then they they fuse so many different styles of music into what they're doing it's just it's really refreshing and yeah so that's like always like when I'm looking at games, I'm always like, where's that, like that special, where's my Mars Volta hit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I will will try to put a link in the show notes to some of the things you were were just talking about. If if people want to, to check it out. (laughs) Thanks. Awesome. Thanks y'all. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson, Tom Donnelly, Ben Mendelker, and myself. Thanks to Edomarles Pelig for our art. Check him out at kirbuloni.com. And thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music. You know them as Alfred. More on Daedalus at gamebrainpod.com. You can reach us by email at contact at gamebrainpod.com or on Twitter at gamebrain underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and go play some games with friends. Or go make some friends with games.